The following sermon was delivered by Pastor Frank Griffith in the Sunday morning service at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. I'd like you to turn to uh, Acts chapter 2, if you would. Acts chapter 2. In the reading this morning, you heard uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 13. is probably one of the most well-known verses in the Bible. It says in your Bible, for by one spirit were we all baptized in one body. I need to clarify something. Uh, Four times in the Gospels, one in each of the Gospels, John the Baptist is quoted, and he says this, I baptize you with water, but one is coming after me who's mightier than I am. He's so great that I can't even stoop down and tie his sandals, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Uh, It's Christ who baptizes us in the Holy Spirit. That's the consistent testimony of the New Testament. So why does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, for by one spirit were we all baptized in one body? That little expression, I don't think any of your translations would have this, but that little expression actually can be translated for in one spirit were we all baptized into one body. In other words, Jesus baptizing us into the spirit puts us in a place where we are part of the formed body of Christ. All those who've been baptized by Christ into the spirit enter into this new sphere of life and we become the body of Christ. And the body of Christ is an expression describing the church because like our physical body, it has many different members, but it's one body. And so what Paul is saying there is that in the spirit, when we were baptized in the spirit by Christ, we were formed into the body of Christ. The question before us today is what kind of church does the Spirit produce? We could have just as easily said, what kind of church does Christ, or does Jesus, is Jesus building? Or what kind of church is the Father planned? Because we're told in Scripture, for example, in Ephesians chapter 1, we're told that the Father chose you, the Son redeemed you, and the Spirit sealed you in Christ and formed you into the body of Christ. So what we want to do is look at the beginning of the church, where we see the church probably in its most pristine uh, condition, and we can see what the church is really all about and what kind of church it is that the Holy Spirit is producing uh, as we are baptized into the Spirit. By the way, in Romans chapter 8, one of your favorite chapters in the Bible, that chapter tells you how to live in the Spirit, because that's where we're at. It's kind of like if if you got transferred to Oklahoma City, you would have to learn a new language and you'd have to learn a whole new way of living. I've got a lot of family that lives there and it is another world. And so when you were transferred into the, into the spirit and you are now live in the spirit, it's a different kind of life. And so what Paul does in Romans 8, he tells you how to live in the spirit. That's what it's about. And if you read it that way, you'll see that's exactly what he's saying. That there's brand new dynamics that we follow. Well, the beginning of that starts right here in Acts chapter 2. As you know, Acts 2 records Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. Now, this is really something because if you remember, Peter denied Christ three times. And he is quite ashamed of it, but he's the spokesman for the, for the disciples, for the apostles on the day of Pentecost when the Spirit was poured out, when Jesus baptized them in the Spirit. 
Now, we were told over and over again before this in the Gospels, Jesus told us that the Spirit would not come until he had been, a, he had been glorified and sent back to the Father. And when he came back to the Father, when he went back to the Father, he would pour out his Spirit. He would give us the promise of the Father, which is the Holy Spirit. And so it was when Christ ascended on high that he poured out the Spirit. By the way, this is why some churches baptized by effusion, which means pouring water over a person, and it's because they're trying to uh, imitate the picture of the Spirit being poured out, and he's poured out like a river. Um, but the word baptized means to immerse, and I might as well mention the fact we're going to have a baptism here in the next few weeks, so if you have come to faith in Christ, you've never been baptized, this would be a good time for you to submit to Christ's command to be baptized in his name. And when you're baptized, it's a picture of the fact that you have been taken out of the, the domain of darkness and placed into the kingdom of his dear son. There's a death, a burial, a resurrection that we experience when we get saved. And so that's what baptism is about. It's a picture of that. Well, if you turn to in Acts chapter 2, let me just read uh, from verse 37, actually. I'm going to read from there in verse 37 down to verse 47, if you would follow along. This is the word of the Lord. Now, when they heard this, that is Peter's sermon, they were pierced to the heart. Because Peter had told them, you crucified him, but God raised him from the dead. How would you like to hear that when you've had someone executed? You, you had him crucified, but God raised him from the dead. And so when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. And they said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, repent, which means change your mind, change your way of thinking. Start thinking differently. Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, be saved from this twisted generation. That is this generation, which they were a part of, that had rejected Jesus as the Messiah and had him crucified. But then listen to verse 41. So then those who had received the word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. There were about 3,000 of the people of Jerusalem who turned to Christ as a result of this event of the spirit being poured out and Peter preaching the gospel. And then it goes on to say in verse 42, they were continually, here is a, here is a picture of what the church was like when it started. Here is the church. It says they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property. Get this. They began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all, as anyone might have need. That's pretty radical, isn't it? Now, this isn't a commandment. This is a description. God did a work in their hearts that caused them to have this kind of attitude. 
And of course, the church was made up of these 3,000 souls. Many of them were from out of Jerusalem. They were there visiting for the celebration of Pentecost. And so they were far from home. And their hearts were so changed that they were willing to give up their own possessions to meet the needs of all these people that were part of the church in Jerusalem. He goes on day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. They were taking meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and have favor, having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. That's a pretty dynamic group, isn't it? That they were so committed to each other that they were together all the time. How long could you stand to be with someone every single day? Well, obviously, you, you do that right now with your husband or wife. But how would you like to live in a context where you're seeing people that are part of the body of Christ every single day? Eating your meals together fellowshipping, continuing in the apostles' doctrine. In other words, talking about what God had revealed through these events through Jesus Christ and what, the, what was happening with the church of Jesus Christ. This church is like nothing that we see today. No buildings. Now, the temple was still there, and they were allowed to go into the temple. There was one part of the temple they could go, and they could meet as a large group and have a time of great celebration. But there was no church building. No church buildings until the fourth century. And so from the beginning of the church in the first century, early first century until the fourth century, they met in homes. And then they met in places like this when they wanted to have a big celebration service. This is the, this is the church. Now, what I want you to notice is several things. First of all, this is the characteristics. This, this is, there are four characteristics here of the church that the spirit is forming and building. And they are, first of all, they are seeking the things above. Listen to this. This is verse 42. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, that is, their teaching about Jesus Christ, and to fellowship, and to the breaking of bread, which is the Lord's table, and to prayers. The word prayers there is talking about prayer meetings. And so what he's saying is they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. They didn't have one of these. They didn't have a Bible. How in the world could they continue in the apostles' teaching? They actually listened to what was being taught and remembered it. And they talked to each other about it. And so there was these continual discussions going on about this new truth that had been revealed through Jesus Christ and proclaimed by the apostles. So they continued in the apostles' teaching. You know, there's really no church life possible apart from the centrality of the word of God. This is what safeguards us from error. There's all kinds of stuff floating around that people hear and tend to believe that has no basis whatsoever in the word of God. But this church, this first church, were continuing in the apostles' doctrine, their teaching about Christ and about the gospel. And then it says, and they continued in fellowship. Fellowship in not only in the apostles' teaching, but in their new life that they had now. Now, the corporate aspect of, is of supreme importance because unattached Christian life is impossible. You can't live the Christian life isolated from other believers. It's not possible. 
And the reason, there's all kinds of reasons. One reason is living the Christian life means that you love one another. So if you find a way to get away from all of your Christian friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, then you can't fulfill that commandment. And some people think, well, you know, if I could get away from these people, I could love them. I can love them from a distance because I don't have to think about all the things that's wrong with them that drives me crazy about them. But they were in fellowship. They were having fellowship. The word saint is only used one time in the New Testament in the singular. The other 67 or 68 times, it's a plural. Because it's always the saints. Now, saint means that you've been set apart to God. It doesn't mean you're perfect and they put you on a statue somewhere. It means that you have been set apart to God through faith in Jesus Christ. And the word saint is always used except one time in Philippians in the plural. Because we are a fellowship of Christians. And we can't grow in the Christian life without each other. We can't live the Christian life without each other. And so this early church, this first church, I mean, think of what this would be like to be a part of something that just starts. You know nothing about it other than what you've heard people say. Perhaps you've heard the teaching of Jesus. Jesus, if you remember back in Matthew 16, and Jesus was talking to his apostles and he said, who do men say that I am? And they told him all the rumors that were going on. And then he says to them, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, thou art the Christ the son of the living God. That was his confession. And Jesus says to him, flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, but my father in heaven has revealed this to you. In other words, it isn't everybody who hears about Jesus Christ that believes on him. It's those that the Holy Spirit opens their eyes to the glory of Christ and who he really is. And you found him irresistible. You found that you couldn't do anything else but believe upon him because of who he is, the Savior upon whom we have rested all of our trust. And so they had fellowship with one another. They were like brothers and sisters, and they were trafficking in this new truth about Jesus Christ who had been raised from the dead and ascended to the right hand of the Father. If you remember from Luke, the last chapter in Luke, the apostles actually saw Jesus ascend to the Father. And they were so full of joy that they went directly into the temple and began to praise God. And they would do that every day. Because they were overwhelmed with the joy of knowing that this Jesus that they had put all their trust in was truly the Son of God. And is not only raised from the dead, but ascended back to the right hand of the Father. The reason is the Father said to him, Sit here at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool or until I put your enemies under your foot. And then he's coming back. Now, we don't know when he's coming back. It's been almost 2,000 years since he ascended. Not quite, but almost. And so we don't know when he's coming back. But he is returning. And so they begin to live in anticipation of his second coming, and this is how they spent their time. They spent their time... Uh, in the apostles' teaching, talking to one another about these new truths that they had come to understand and hear from them. They spent their time in fellowship with each other, fellowshipping, sharing in common this new life in Christ Jesus, and then breaking bread, which is talking about the Lord's table. 
See, in the early church, uh, breaking of bread took place in houses. People opened their homes and believers came over. You could get, in in an average home in Jerusalem at this time, you could get somewhere between 12 and 18 people, kind of depending on the house. Some people had larger courtyards that they could meet in. So this was the average size of this gathering of Christians from house to house. was somewhere between 12 and 20 people. And what they did was they shared their lives together. They talked about the apostles' teaching. They had fellowship with each other. They broke bread. That is, they partook of the Lord's Supper as he had commanded them to. And then they had prayer meetings. The word prayer here is prayers in the plural, and it means prayer meetings. They continued in prayer meetings. So when they met together in houses, this is what they did. They continued in the apostles' doctrine. They, uh, they had fellowship with each other. They shared their life and their experience of Christ. They took the Lord's Supper, and they had prayer meetings. Sounds like a house fellowship, doesn't it? That's what it is. And you know what that is doing? That's loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's loving him with all your heart because you praise him, whether it's with singing or however it is, you're praising God with your heart. All your soul, that's prayer. All your mind, that's continuing the apostles' doctrine, talking to each other about what the Bible teaches, who it says we are, and what we're to be doing. And then with all their strength, they join together in doing ministry. Now, as we see it described here in the way that they treated each other, it's amazing. And what we see in verse 43 is they begin to experience the power of God. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And people all around them saw it. They say that that one of the primary things that caused the church to grow in the first century was curiosity. Because these little groups would gather in homes, and then they would see their lives being absolutely transformed. And the way they lived their lives was completely different than they had before. They followed Christ in a very obvious way. And so people would become very curious and want to know what's going on. They didn't even do evangelism in the sense that modern-day churches do. You know, have an evangelistic program and go knock on doors. They did none of that. People came to them because they wondered, what's going on here? What is this all about? And they were able to tell them. This is what it's about. It's about the fact that Jesus, who is, was, is the Messiah, though he was rejected by his own people, and he was crucified on the cross, has ascended to the Father. He was raised from the dead and ascended to the Father. And he died on the cross in order to fulfill his mission in coming into this world Not only to save us, to take care of our sins, but also to become qualified to be the king of the kingdom. You remember in in Genesis 1 when God creates, uh, when he creates Adam and Eve, he tells them, now I want you to take dominion over the creation. I want you to rule over it. But they fell within a very short time. And they were under a curse. Jesus, the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, came into the world and took on our humanity so he could take the place of a fallen Adam. And he's actually called in the Bible, he's the last Adam. Because he came and he was qualified through his work and his life and his accomplishment as the eternal Son of God 
who's taken on our humanity to become king of the kingdom, to rule over God's creation. And he's the one that we serve. And then they also continued in loving people and using things, which is an odd thing, isn't it? Loving people and using things. It says, and all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. I think what you have to keep in mind here, this was not a commandment. And it's not a commandment to us. It is the effect of what the Spirit did in their hearts. It's the effect of what God does in the heart of a person when he turns to Christ. Or she turns to Christ. All of a sudden, that old dominant selfishness begins to be crushed by this new life that comes to live within you. You see, that's, this is just imitating God, isn't it? You, you all know John three sixteen for God so loved the world that he did what? He gave. That's what he did. He gave the most precious thing, his son. And, of course, Jesus, when he came into the world, he says in Mark ten forty five, even the Son of Man, and that, by the way, is the title that he most often used, and it speaks of his great authority and power. He's the king. And he says, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. See, so it's just following the pattern of Jesus who follows the pattern of his father, who reveals his father to us. So this true Christian spirit is shown here among the disciples. First of all, there's great unity. They were united by a common faith, what they believed, by communal fellowship. They were together. They loved to be together. And they shared everything they had with each other. I don't know, they, uh, they were sometimes called the synagogue of the Nazarene because Jesus was known as the Nazarene because he was born in Nazareth. Not a Nazarite, but a Nazarene. Today, in some Muslim countries, they're actually marking the house of Christians with an in. It's not in our language, but in in the Arabic language to indicate that they're Nazarene followers. It marks you when you follow Jesus Christ. And so they were experiencing this unity. And then you see this unselfishness in verse 45. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Now we're just lucky. We, we, we are associated with a church that has no needs whatsoever. Everybody is rich in this church. And they never have any needs. That's called sarcasm. See, it doesn't matter where you go in the world. When you start fellowshipping with Christians, you're going to be fellowshipping with brothers and sisters who have needs. And when you look at this and you see that God changed their heart in this way, it wasn't commanded. It wasn't a rule. It was a condition of their heart. What in the world does that? It's the Spirit of God. Well, you cannot help but have that kind of attitude when you start thinking about the reality of what Christ has done for us that he gave himself for us, 
that he laid down his life for us. I've thought about this, studying this. I've thought about it. I've thought about myself. Could I give up everything I have? I don't think so. Unless God did something really powerful in my heart. I just got too many things. Like the rich young ruler. Remember when Jesus said to him, you lack one thing. That is, this guy wanted to know, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, have you, you keep the commandments? He said, oh, I've kept the commandments since I was a little boy. He knew, the t- he knew all the commandments. And he said he had kept them. And so Jesus looks at him, knowing his heart. And he said, you lack one thing. Go sell everything you have and give it to the poor and come and follow me. Well, what would that do? What that would do would manifest the fact that he loved Christ more than all of his possessions. But he had a problem. He was rich. And so it says that he was downcast and he walked away very downcast because his riches were so great. He just couldn't do that. If he had been a poor man, he thought he could have done it. <laughs> you see, the, the point is this. This is shocking because the point of it is, is that this is what Christ produced in the hearts. This is what the Holy Spirit produced in the hearts of these, the members of the first church. He put it in their heart to love people to this degree that they would actually sell their own possessions Now, it could be faked, as we see in Acts 5, that is faked by a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira. They sold a piece of property. And the reason they did it was because they saw all the adulation that Barnabas got when he sold a piece of property and brought them all the money and said, here, put this in the the apostles' account so they can use it to meet people's needs. Well, they saw him do that, and they wanted to be recognized in the same way. And so they sold a piece of property... And they gave some of it, but they acted like they gave it all. And so they're confronted by the Apostle Peter because they lied to the Holy Spirit. Because they wanted people to think that they had done just what Barnabas had done. So it could be faked. It wasn't commanded, and it could be faked. But the reason it happened was because of what the Spirit did in the hearts of these people. So I think we have to expect that he's going to do the same thing in our hearts. Uh, my grandfather was a pastor of a tiny little church. I guess it runs in the family. Um, back in uh, Norman, Oklahoma. Norman, Oklahoma is where the University of Oklahoma is. In that little town during the Depression, my, uh, my grandfather pastored a church. There was about 40 people. But they had such a burden for the poor, even though they were poor, <laughs> They had such a burden for the poor that they started feeding 150 people every day because it was the Depression. And people were riding through Norman on the, on the trains, and they heard there was a place you could get a meal. So every day, they would feed 150 people twice a day. And I, my dad grew up with that. And uh, I used to wonder why he was the way he was. Because... It drove everybody crazy that worked with him. He was always giving everything away. It was just, it was nuts. He would, you never knew what he was going to do. He, he just, uh, it just was so natural for him. If somebody had a need, he's going to find a way to meet it. What is that? It's a disease called Christianity. It's the work of the spirit in the hearts of people. 
my grandfather died. He's the pastor of this tiny little church, and they did this full-page article on him and about this ministry he had, because what he would do every day, he would take a wagon that he pulled along, and his boys would walk with him, and they would walk through town and, and get all the food they could from the merchants. They had day-old food and things like that, maybe three-day-old food, I don't know. But they would give him all this food. He would take, walk it back to the church, and they'd prepare these meals. You see, that's, that's something that the Spirit of God produces in people's hearts. And you probably think, I'm a, what is he going to do, take an offering? No. Nope. I'm just telling you, you better watch out because this is how the Spirit works. He actually produces this kind of love in people's hearts. He actually works in our hearts so that we release to him our whole lives. Now this next section, in verses 46 and 47, you see them living like a healthy family together. Listen to what it says, verse 46. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were, looking, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. They were actually enjoying it. Praising God and having favor with all the people, all their neighbors. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. So you see this progress in the church in verse 46. It was a daily thing. It was happening Continuously, God was doing this in their hearts. They were continuing with one mind in the temple, meeting together as a, great, a large group, praising God, celebrating what Christ had done. And then they would meet together in smaller groups from house to house, taking the Lord's table, breaking bread, having meals together. Somebody said, I read somebody the other day, said uh, the meetings in the church, in the early church, the first church, in Jerusalem were M-E-A-T-I-N-G meetings. They always had a meal. I've been talking to my wife about this. Sounds like a great idea, doesn't it? When believers get together to share a meal and then break bread and pray and sing praises to the living God. It sounds like that's exactly what was going on in the early church. And there was great progress. Daily, day after day, this was happening. Now, there was domestic fellowship as well as fellowship in the temple. The domestic fellowship is described there in verse 47. Um, You see, they couldn't conveniently do all these things in the temple, but they could do it in homes. And so that's what they did. They went from house to house. At first, it was a daily occurrence. Later on, like in 1 Corinthians 10, it tells us it was a weekly occurrence. Uh, But they loved being together. They loved each other. And they loved being together with each other. Later on, they started meeting on the first day of the week because it was the day that Jesus was raised from the dead and it seemed like the, the day they wanted to get together as an entire community And so they would get together and worship and praise God together. There was a word, and there was actually an idea among the first century Jews. It was called a habarah. It was was a group of people who so loved each other that they they constantly met around a communal meal to share life together. And that's how the early church was. Breaking bread is referring to the Lord's Supper, 
celebrated in their homes and then taking their meals together was talking about table fellowship. But this table fellowship was with joy and simplicity. They had great joy as they took meals together. And the power that was manifested, notice in in verse uh, 47, when it says they were praising God and having favor with all of their neighbors, all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. They were actually infecting those around them with this joy that they had in Christ. What if, what if, that the, the most powerful way to do evangelism was to have joy and people want to know why. And so you can tell them. You know, Peter said that you ought to always be ready to explain why you have hope. Hope and, and joy kind of manifest themselves the same way, don't they? And so Peter says, you know, always be ready to explain the joy that lies within you, the, the, the hope that lies within you. And I thought, well, what if, what if I don't have any hope? Then something's wrong with me. Because he's given me a thousand promises in the word of God. I don't know how many there are, but there are over a thousand promises. And because he's given this promises, we can have hope. You know, I get, I get so tired of, don't you get all the, a lot of emails that tell you how bad the world is? And how horrible things are? And what you're, what's going to just about to happen to you? They're going to steal everything you have. And so we should all be oppressed and depressed because of this world, the shape of this world. But we forget something. Jesus Christ came into this world. And he went to the cross for us. He purchased our salvation. He actually paid a redemption price for us to bring us into the kingdom of God. And because we're in the kingdom of God... We have this expectation that the king's coming back. So we have a bright future, a very bright future. And we long to see him. I, I love this. Uh, turn, turn over to First Thessalonians, uh, Second Thessalonians, just one second. Second Thessalonians is uh, back towards the Colossians, First Thessalonians, and then Second Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. I want you to listen to this promise about the future coming of Christ. It says um, in verse 10, he's talking about the second coming of Christ. It says, when he comes to be glorified in all his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed, for our testimony to you was believed. In other words, he says, it's going to be a day of great, great rejoicing. We're all going to lose our inhibitions. And we're going to praise him openly when we see him. And he's returning. And you know what? That's one of the best things about gathering as the people of God in small groups or larger groups. I'm convinced that the place you're going to grow is in a small group. The reason we have, we, we, we've attempted from the beginning to have small groups. We have house fellowships. We only have three right now. We need about nine. And if any of you men... And the couples want to host a, a house fellowship. And you want to lead one. You mean, one of you men want to lead one. Please talk to me. Because this is where growth takes place. This is where transformation takes place. 
because God has made it this way. Christ has made it this way. That it is through fellowship with each other, through sharing life with each other, that transformation takes place. Oh, it's the word of God. You know, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed, be being transformed by the renewing of your mind through the word of God. But it takes place as you live in close fellowship with one another. This is where growth really takes place. This is where discipleship takes place. And if we isolate ourselves from one another, we're not going to experience growth as disciples. So we have to be with one another. And it's getting harder, isn't it? It's getting harder all the time for believers to be together like it's described here. Because we're so busy. We're just, we have so many things to do. And it's, it's just so difficult. My grandson, I got a recording of him. One of my, he's 18 years old now, so he's not here, so I can tell you this. When he was about four, and he had a little brother come along, uh, he called, and it was recorded on the answering machine because we didn't answer the phone. We hadn't answered the phone. We weren't there. And he says, uh, uh, Grandma, Grandpa, can I come over? It's just so hard here. It's so hard. And then he says what's hard was uh, his little brother bugging him. He had a little brother three years younger than him, and it just drove him crazy to have to listen to his little brother. You know, it's not hard to have Christian fellowship. It's the easiest thing in the world. We, can, we have a life to share with each other. We have a Savior to share with each other. We have a Bible to share with each other. And this is the way the early church was. That's what it was all about. So what's the conclusion of this? Well, this, the secret of the church, like, like it's described here, is twofold, twofold secret. The first is what God has done, his activity. And what he's done is he's given Christ for us. So we have a Savior who was sent into the world to deliver us. And then he put Christ in us, a friend to be experienced, because the Bible says he lives within us. You remember Paul said, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. Christ lives in you. That's, that's true of every Christian. So he's given Christ for us, and he's given Christ to us, Christ among us. He's in our presence. He's, we told us where two or three gather my name, there I am in the midst. And so we have a master that we honor. We glorify Christ. We sing songs about him. I'm sure when non-Christians come in among us and they hear us singing all these songs about Jesus, wonder, why do they do that? What's that all about? Oh, it's about the one that we master our master that we honor, rather. And then Christ through us, he's manifested in our lives as we live in obedience to him, as we love other people, as he actually opens our heart to give ourselves away. You know, that's what grace is. Grace is God giving himself for you. And then the church's response, this is how we are to respond, this is how the early church responded, they received salvation through Christ. Not only... Salvation when they turn their faith, first turn in faith to Christ, but as they live every day, they're experiencing his delivering power, his transforming power. And then surrendering to Christ, both an absolute surrender at, at salvation and a continual surrender every day as he puts it on our hearts to love each other sacrificially. And then serving Christ, spirit and power effort. You know, some Christians think, 
Oh, we're not supposed to exert any effort. That would be uh, legalism. Baloney. That's not true. God is not against effort. He's against earning. He doesn't want you to think you can earn his favor. He wants you to know you must receive it as a gift. But it's good to exert effort in order to grow in the faith. To grow up and to follow Christ. So the rest, the results in this early church, and we want it to be in our church, is an ever-deepening realization of God's presence with him. The presence of God. I was talking to a pastor the other day. I was totally surprised. He began to tell me about an experience he had. Experiencing, and he moves in our circles, so we don't expect people in our circles to ever talk about experiencing God's presence. That's too scary. But he started telling me about experiencing the manifest presence of God in his life. And we both resonated with it because we both have experienced it. That God wants to manifest his presence among us. The realized presence of God. And there's an ever-widening blessing to those around us. In other words, people that know us should be blessed by us because of who we are and what we are. And then an ever-increasing awareness of God's glory who's working in us. Um, we, have, we have some people. I would have them stand, but I don't want to embarrass them. We have several people in the church that work at the uh, food pantry that's here in, in uh, Knightson, giving, distributing food to people who are hungry. And, yeah, there are some of them who are undeserving. In fact, there's some of us here that are undeserving. I know I'm one of those. Uh, you, if you talk to them, if you talk to them about why do you do that, you'd be surprised. It's because it's pure joy. It's joy. It's joy to serve others in the name of Christ. I've told you this before, I know, but I used to get letters from a guy named Ramesh Richard, who's a teacher at um, Dallas Seminary. And when I was in seminary at Talbot, his father came and preached in the, in the uh, chapel service. And I still remember it because he was Indian and he was a missionary in India. He was an evangelist in India. And he said, the greatest, one of the greatest difficulties we have is we're trying to talk to people about eternal things. And all they're interested in is making enough money to feed their family today. And so it didn't, it, a lot of times it doesn't make sense to them to stop and think about eternal things. We have other distractions. But anyway, Ramesh used to, when he sent letters out, he would always say, he would sign the letter like this, a servant of the servants of the servant. And it was a, a servant, small s, of the servants, small s, that's us, of the servant, capital S, the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, that's one of his primary titles in the book of Isaiah. He's, a servant of, he's the servant of the Lord. And he came as a servant of the Lord to die for your sins and my sins, to bring salvation to us, to pay the, the ransom price for us, to set us free. And not only that, he came to live within us and he impacts our hearts. So I guess I'm just warning you, you know, what he does in people is really astounding and he can do it in you. It's him. He does this to us. He so enlarges our hearts that we begin to love others more than we love ourselves. And how in the world can you possibly get along in America by loving others more than you love yourself? (laughs) It seems so odd. Not wanting to accumulate stuff, but wanting to bless people. 
That's what he's called us to do. So I want to appeal to you, anything you can do to help us ex- ex- uh, expand our small groups so that we can experience this kind of atmosphere together as believers, where we're meeting together to praise the living God, to break bread, to bless one another, to continue in the apostles' doctrine. That's what he wants us to do. That's the most important thing. I would rather see us multiply small groups than get bigger as a church. To see people actually meeting together and sharing their life together. And what I love about small group, as the house fellowships, it's so much easier, even in this meeting on Sunday mornings, because you have to plan a bunch of stuff because, you know, they call this attractional church. We're not, we're not very good at it, but they call it attractional church where you have to put together a program that people, appeals to people and they want to come to see this show you put on. Whereas in a house fellowship, you're just a bunch of Christians getting together and sharing your lives with each other and worshiping the Christ that saved us and sharing what we have with each other, both spiritually and materially. So I want to pray for us as a church that we would do that very thing. Our Father, uh, we thank you so much for the, the work of Christ, for his ability to save, to transform, to perfect. We thank you that he's able to enlarge our hearts so that we love better than we do now. And so we pray, Father, that you would work in us through your word, through the Holy Spirit, bringing it to bear upon our hearts. Help us, Father, to manifest the characteristics of a real church that we would love one another the way Christ loved us, that we would sacrifice for each other, that we would lay down our lives for each other. Thank you so much for a Savior who was willing to come and give his all for us to bring us into the kingdom of God. We are grateful and we praise your name for it. In Jesus' name, amen. To respond to this message or learn more, please visit calvarytruth.org.